Hello, my friends, and welcome once again to Miskatonic University Radio. The episode you're about to hear um, featuring our interview with Fantasy Flight's MJ Newman and Duke Harris was recorded a few weeks ago, um, and in fact, it was recorded the day before the new Taboo list was released. So you'll hear us mention a few times uh, some cards like David Renfield that uh, you know turned out to get tabooed immediately afterwards you know, talking about them as if they had not been tabooed, which at the time they hadn't been. So just a little heads up, just so that nobody gets confused. Uh, anyway, that's it. Enjoy the episode. Mr. Pop. Dark. And the little birds are nasty, and I listen to them too. There's two lonesome people in the whole wide world, that's me and the man in the moon. Well, hello everybody, and welcome to Miskatonic University Radio, a podcast exploring fantasy flight games as Arkham Horror the Card Game. I'm Dane. I'm Dan. I'm Ben. And today... We're going to be spoiling a new card from the Scarlet Keys, and we have a couple guests to help us through it. Dan, who are these people? Uh, we have we have two very special guests. We have uh, returning returning to the podcast for the several time. I can't remember exactly how many, but uh, always always <laughs> fun to have is uh, MJ. Who um, you know, I I, I I think people probably are familiar with you, but uh, can you introduce yourself briefly? Just yeah, uh, I would hope so. Um, <laughs> I'm MJ Newman. Uh, I am the lead designer of Arkham Horror the Card Game. Very uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and joining us for the first time, uh, a man who we've just learned can do a very convincing sort of bird call noise out of his <laughs> mouth with his hand, uh, is uh, Duke, who we, we, we met you briefly at, at Arkham Nights last year. Duke, why, why are you here? Uh, I am also a designer on the Arkham Horror Card Game. Um, I'm Duke Harris, and it's good to see you all. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I think we uh, we we met you. We talked about this a little bit when we we did an episode about our Arkham Knights experience. But we were just playing a light in the fog in the kind of back room at the uh, at the game center, and uh, I think you just kind of wandered by and you were like, "Oh, hey, I designed that," and we we kind of had a fun <laughs> chat about it. So that was that's the kind of like fun coincidence that can only happen at at Arkham Knights, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've had moments like that at Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Gen Con, you probably can't like throw a stick without hitting somebody that's worked on something that you played, right? <laughs> it's true. But then, like, it's really funny too that like sometimes, sometimes it'll like, oh, that's just someone who's running this event, right? And then someone else will be like, no, that's that's like the lead designer. And they're like, <laughs> what? And that's always funny. <laughs> that's definitely funny. They've taken corporeal form. Yeah, they've, they've, they've manifested themselves. Um, so, 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 Duke, like, like I said, I think people people are, are pretty familiar with MJ. But can you, since this is your first time on the show, can you maybe tell us a little bit about just? Um, I, I see you've got all of, like the return to boxes there behind you. Can you just tell us a little bit about what your history with Arkham Horror the card game is like, and sort of how you came to be a, a designer on it? Yeah, totally. I've been playing board games for a long time and really enjoying what like connecting with people and playing them. Uh, and I was first in on Arkham Horror, the card game. Uh, oddly enough, I hadn't been previewed on the game. Like I hadn't seen any previews for it, but I was in a, in a board game shop, I think the week it came out and I was like, wait, this is a thing. And so I bought it and I took it home and I played it. Uh, I played everything as soon as it came out. Cause uh, it quickly became my favorite game 
And in 2018 or somewhere in there, uh, I was actually living in Colorado, uh, finishing a novel I was working on. And some people in my life were like, oh, you're always playing and making board games. Why aren't you trying to do that for a living? So I ended up as an intern at at FFG uh, in spring of 2019, right when uh, you may have heard of this uh, little thing called the Innsmouth Conspiracy uh, was sort of like rolling out. And I got to work with MJ there, and it was a, a pretty awesome experience. Like, oh, wait, you made this thing, and, and now I get to make this thing with you? <laughs> and so uh, while, I was, while, while that was in development and work, uh, we were working on it, I got to work on the Light in the Fog Mythos Pack. And uh, I'd stayed really close with FFG since then and uh, started last about a year ago at FFG. Um, it's my one-year anniversary this month. Nice. Congratulations. Hey. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah, what Duke is leaving out is that we do like an intern project when we have an intern. It's like the culmination of their internship at FFG. And it's usually something like fairly small. It's like uh, you're going to design like, you know, a few cards for this game or a keyword for this game or this, that or the other thing. And Duke is just like, I made a whole scenario and he just <laughs> made a whole scenario and it was really good. So I just put it into Innsmouth with like minimal changes and that's why like later on when it was like all right we're gonna hire someone i was like this guy hire him please and they did <laughs> very cool yeah and i mean not not just any scenario but a, a pretty cool one uh, it's, it's got yeah be it, was, said, so. it was very fun yeah i liked it so duke just because you have this perspective of court sort of like starting as a fan of the game and, and you know eventually coming to work on it um, do you have like a, a favorite investigator or a favorite scenario or campaign kind of of the, of the stuff that was around before you joined FFG? Oh gosh. I mean, yeah. Um, I mean, I was a huge Silas fan mostly cause I was super into Silas and I thought his ability was pretty awesome. Mm. But so that was like, he was probably my go-to investigator for a while, but I also really ended up liking, uh, actually this, this is kind of cheating, but Trish is another favorite investigator of mine too. <laughs> And I just love the whole like spy aspect and uh, how she gets in and she just covertly gets the clues. And it's really hard to pick a favorite because uh, I've had great experiences with every single campaign. I held on to, you know, before I was an intern, I definitely, I made themed cheese plates and things for the Path to Carcosa campaign. Wow. And I got really into it. My One of my best friends and I would play it like late into the evening. And, you know, when we played uh, Phantom of Truth, the first time and the organist came out i like was like wait john and i went and i got i think this is like at 11 in, in the evening and i had two roommates and i got like a speaker and i brought out phantom of the opera and i just blared it real loud and did like an interpretive dance of the organist uh, as we were playing so yeah i got really into the game then i haven't told mj that story <laughs> no you haven't we, we like, talk more what? after this what? cast what? about <laughs> cheese plates oh yeah yeah well, we made it the yellow sign in honey uh, with the cheese plate and everything too. So we uh, we used to torture people at our table whenever somebody drew torturous chords and failed the test. We used to play Toccata and Fugue in D minor, whatever it is, really really loud. So that's a that's a, that's a scenario that has a lot of room for fun musical uh, interpretations. I think I just play Phantom of the Opera. That works too. That's yeah. also yeah. a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, definitely. You know, c- congrats on your uh, on on your one year uh, you know spot. That's really neat. Thanks. 
So I think we uh, we wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about the new campaign, which which we're all very excited about. I know you can't obviously, you know, anything that hasn't kind of been revealed yet, you know, you got to stay hush hush. But we're really excited about just the sort of like the nonlinear format and the way that, you know, it's it's scenarios. It's like the first and last scenarios are, are fixed, but the rest can be played in any order. Right. Is that right? Uh, yes, that is correct. One thing that we know is there's like a world map that has both the Scarlet Keys scenario locations on it, but also some of the existing <laughs> standalone locations. So it does. We love the standalones. Is this like a campaign that is is it really going to kind of lend itself well to maybe like mixing in a whole bunch of standalones and making like an epic kind of marathon campaign? Yes, yeah. You you can absolutely uh integrate any or all of those standalones into the Scarlet Keys in a much uh, more, I want to say, like, thematic way than in previous campaigns where it's like, we have two nights to complete this task, and it's like, let's go to Venice. <laughs> yeah, let's take, a, let's take a boat to, to Italy or whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, like, canonically, it makes a lot more sense in this uh, campaign, and there's even specific, like, new rules for embarking on side stories in this campaign that kind of alters how um, those side stories work, so. And, um, I'm sure everyone here also watched the in-flight report at Gen mm. Con, but you might even notice on that world map that's up on the screen uh, that uh, there is a side story location that doesn't currently have a side story attached to it. <laughs> What's that about? I mean, uh, we are a little curious. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Arcanite is that about? Was just announced. <laughs> I don't know. What could it be? It does mention a new from a new scenario at Arcanites, so. We'll I'm see. suspicious. I'm suspicious we might be going to that location. So <laughs> I gotta say, as a as an old Elder Chore player, anytime I see like a world map with uh with these little <laughs> lines connecting stuff, it you know it gets gets mm-hmm. me a little excited. I'm excited for this. So what I love about this too, um, it's kind of hard to tell unless you really like have the map in front of you. But we paid a lot of attention to what routes you would be using in the 1920s to get from one place to another. Um, so. Uh, the plane routes look like plane routes. The sea routes actually follow like the route a boat would take in that time. Some of those are, are rails um, that existed in the 1920s and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of attention to detail um, on that map. That's really cool. Some of them are like arcs, but other ones, you know, actually weave between like the various rivers and roads. Yeah, exactly. Like the ones that look like just straight lines, those are just plane mm-hmm. routes. But uh, some of them are more like in line with where you would be going in the 1920s if you were like following a railroad or something well and like the Ooh. like the panama canal was like new technology in the 1920s like that had just been built right mm-hmm. so and I, I see like it looks like the route from kind of like the caribbean down to like uh keto or something goes right through there so that's yeah. kind of cool yeah just talking about standalones a little bit more do the do like those kind of middle six scenarios of Scarlet Keys? Are do those have kind of like a standalone mode? Like, do you think those would work well as standalones mixed into some other campaign? Maybe some of them. They they all like like every scenario in Arkham Horror card game. They're all playable in standalone mode, and it's even kind of uh, in some ways it's it's even cooler because Scarlet Keys has this big uh, clock. Basically, you're fight you're racing against time. And that's why, like, what what route you take through the world matters, because if you take a really long-winded route, you might not get to play all of the scenarios, or you might miss out on other things that are scattered around the world. So likewise, when you're playing in standalone mode, you can kind of just choose, like, what time, how much time uh, has passed in the campaign when I'm playing the standalone version of this uh, scenario, because some of the scenarios change drastically 
depending mm. on whether you play them early or late. So that's really exciting to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that's something that we were curious about is like in a, in a typical campaign where the scenarios happen at more or less a fixed, you know, order, there's usually the later ones are kind of harder, like they're they're the challenge mm-hmm. ramps up a little bit. So it sounds like there's some sort of like more flexible, like difficulty scaling thing that's going to make the later scenarios harder, even though you can be playing them in any order. Yeah, there's a couple scaling factors. I won't go into all of them, but there's a few there's a few different levers that are being hit at different moments, depending on like uh, the order you played the scenarios, um, what other locations you've hit before you went to certain scenarios, um, what information you possess, uh, and of course the time, how much time has passed. Like there's a lot of different factors that could tie in, and there's even a couple of scenarios that like you don't even have access to at the beginning of the campaign, like even right after the prologue. You've got to figure some stuff out first, and that's really cool. Ooh. There's one, there's one scenario it... in, in particular that's basically hidden. <laughs> you have to figure nice. out the proper attunement quests to to, <laughs> to unlock the door. You gotta find yeah, the, you gotta find yeah. the staff of Ra in like Nepal or whatever and bring it to Egypt or something. This, so like I've said this before on podcasts, but like one of my favorite things in video games is like like I beat Bloodborne right, and then I go back and I play Bloodborne again, and I go into this area and I'm like, whoa, I didn't know this whole area existed. What? This is crazy. So I really want people to have that experience when they play the Scarlet Key is they get through the whole campaign and they're like, there's three decks that didn't even open. Like, what? You know what I mean? That's what that's what I want. Like, I didn't even know we had a basement and there it is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is just sprawling yeah. in like epic in a really cool way. Uh, I think yeah. players are really going to love it. Yeah, someone someone mentioned time and order matter. Yeah, it my one of my inspirations for this campaign was Mega Man. Uh, specifically like the Mega Man X series where it's like yeah you can play any of the bosses in any order but if you do this one first then it affects this stage and if you do this first and yeah there's maybe not as much of that as there is in like Mega Man X but that was definitely one of my inspirations I I like Mega Man (laughs) (laughs) you you will also die about a thousand times on each of those bosses right (laughs) (laughs) if I did my job yeah definitely and Duke, so you you worked on that, you know, so, so we talked about how you worked on A Light in the Fog previously. I know you probably can't say too much about it, but can you tell us anything just about uh, what your experience of working on this was like, or, you know, any sort of particularly cool uh, moments you had when you were working on the Scarlet Keys campaign? I can tell you, uh, I just had a delight being able to work on some of the writing and also uh, work on some of the development of these scenarios and, and bring them to hopefully the, the level that, um, you know, we all wanted them to be. And that just was, it was so fun just tinkering with these things and, and getting to feel out the development process in a way that I couldn't as an intern. So like, you know, MJ has mentioned that I, I handed A Light in the Fog off, but I didn't get to see quite all the last bits or I didn't get to work on them as a developer in the final stages. And this was real great to be able to work on these and, and be like, oh, well, let's try this or let's push this this way. So that's true. I almost feel like you had the opposite experience as you did with Light in the Fog, where at the start of development on this campaign, it was Duke had not yet joined the Arkham team. So uh, there were other developers and we had like, all right, you know, Jeremy's going to make this scenario and Aaron's going to make these scenarios. and I'm going to make these scenarios and so on and so forth. And then when Duke joined, it's like, OK, uh, finish these. <laughs> <laughs> so Duke did a great job polishing and in some cases, like kind of um rebooting certain scenarios which was really cool yeah there's definitely one scenario that i feel like i got to make truly my own um and the rest yeah uh, i i kind of polished up to the level that 
we wanted them. And you definitely like helped a lot with story writing. That was just a joy. It's one of the reasons I was really excited to have you on the team. Is like, yeah, hey, dude, can you write this, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was so fun to like really dig into these uh, different locations, and it, it mm-hmm. gives such a variety. Like, you get a real sense of the variety in our world. Like, hopefully, you play this campaign, and you're like, ah, I want to go to this city, or I want to go see this place, or or find out more about that area that we actually played in the game. Yeah, it sounds really cool. We are we're like extremely uh, excited for this. So that uh, very very excited to finally get our hands on it. Talking about the the investigators a little bit. So before the campaign box, we've got like the investigator box with the new investigators and the new player cards. We got to reveal uh, Daryl a little bit a, a few weeks ago, which was really really fun. And everyone, I mean, we're all excited about him. I think Dane basically started a cult around him. <laughs> so there's been a lot of there's been a lot of Daryl related excitement. I do have a question though. You know, we always thought that survivors are these kind of like average Joes. They're like the 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 thing is they're like the last person in the horror movie or whatever. But he's really good at investigating. He has five intellects. Is he still like what what makes him a survivor specifically? I would say what makes him a survivor is the fact that even though he is really good at investigating, he's not like prepared for this. He's just a man with a camera and like a dedicated spirit. Um, he really <laughs> wants to find the truth, but it's not like he's an established like occult expert or or like a scientist or anything. he doesn't have anything that really screams seeker aside from he's good at investigating uh and to me the survivor class has always been the home for people with a weird niche and so you've got survivors who are really good at combat you've got survivors who are really good at evasion you've got survivors who can actually do some magic You've got Calvin, who's just <laughs> whatever. <laughs> so to me, Daryl is like one of one of those survivor characters that fills like an interesting niche. He's the he's the high intellect survivor. Like he's the high intellect survivor. You know what I mean? And the, there's a few characters like that in every class. I think that are like there's the high combat seeker. There's the high uh, combat rogue. There's the high there's the low combat guardian. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, there's always, like, the the kind of the oddballs are sometimes, like, the most fun and interesting ones, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But thematically, I think it's basically just that, like, Daryl, just do with the camera. That's why I love his weakness, is just like, oh no, my film. I dropped it in a puddle. Oh, I dropped my film. Not in a puddle. Actually, it's less it's less the puddle and it's more the um the daylight, I would I would think. But yes. <laughs> yeah, just exposing that, you know, but I mean, these days, you know, it's all digital cameras. So people have forgotten about that. You can't like, yeah. I guess you could drop an SD card into a puddle or something. And that would be like the modern equivalent <laughs> or something like that. Um, speaking of Daryl and cameras, though, yeah, he's, he's probably going to be carrying around several cameras, I would guess, and based on most <laughs> of the decks so. people have been making. Um, but we are curious because, you know, Daryl's announced he has this mechanic that's kind of based around evidence, like evidence tokens. And there's this card, Hawkeye Folding Camera, which is one of Dane's favorite cards. That is mm-hmm. basically like the perfect card for Daryl, right? Mm-hmm. We're we're just curious about that. Like when Hawkeye Folding Camera was designed, you know, like a few years ago, were you thinking ahead to like, oh man, one day Daryl's gonna be, or was it just kind of like a nice coincidence? Or how how did that? No, evolve? definitely not. Definitely not. Sometimes sometimes we have like designs like banked where we're like, okay, we know this character is gonna do this or something adjacent to this. So when we design this card that we know should work really well with them, we want to make sure that it works really well with them. Other times, we design a card, like Hawkeye Folding Camera, and then we're not even thinking about that character yet, right? All we know is, like, Daryl's probably going to use a camera, (laughs) 
We don't know if he's going to come with his own camera. We don't know if he's going to use just like want to include this camera. Um, the only thing I knew about Daryl at the time that we worked on Hawkeye was like, we knew he was going to be the survivor seeker. Like that mm. was, that was kind of the plan from like the get go. His coming was foretold. People have been waiting for that combination <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. There's certain combinations that are just like, okay, we know that that's that character. We just have to wait for the opportune time, you know? And then when we were working on his ability, we were like, well, we obviously we want to make something that works well with Hawkeye folding camera. And we had a couple different, you know, ideas that we floated around. And eventually I settled on this idea and it just happens to neatly combo with Hawkeye folding camera. So it's wow. great. <laughs> you can have double cameras and, you know, there might even be other evidence based cards. Yeah, there. I think a couple of them have been <laughs> have been previewed, uh, so mm-hmm. we're excited yeah. to see how they work. But mainly, what, what I like about it is, even if you don't use any of those cards, you can just use his Kodak mm-hmm. and gather evidence that way, and it's it's fine. Like it's good. <laughs> he's he's got his five in. He's got his level two seeker cards. Like he's he's pretty much all set. There's a lot of yeah, you know he's, he's gonna be he's able good. to he's gonna be able to get the job done. Yeah, which is important because like we're gonna have players who pick up a core set. And this box. Mm. And they're not even going to have access to Hawkeye folding camera and etc. So uh, it needed to work just fine at the gate. And thankfully it does. So Yay. I wanted to talk a little bit about one of the other investigators coming in the Scarlet Keys, Kamani. Yeah. Similar to investigators before them, like Matteo in Parallel Roland, Kamani has five bonus XP to start with. And mm-hmm. one of the folks in Discord on the night train asked a question, what is the determining factor for giving some investigators five starting XP? So we have different, um, what we call suites of deck building options that as designers, we, we like to keep consistent or symmetrical. So for example, the Dunwich characters all have the same suite, right? They are monoclass with five flex spots. All of the characters from Edge of the Earth have the same suite. Um, but a lot of times they're spread across many different products. So we have like like the the Finn archetype of low class uh low primary class level access, but unlimited access of like some trait, you know what I mean? And then like a bunch of flex spots for like two different classes. That's like one whole archetype. And there's multiple characters that fit that archetype, like uh, Marie is in that archetype. Carolyn, right? Yes, and Carolyn. Carolyn's also in that archetype. And we try to make it so that there's not more than one character of the same class that share that archetype. So ideally, and it's not like a, it's not like a rule, but like ideally, we wouldn't have another Mystic with five bonus experience because that's Mateo's like niche, right? So working off of that assumption, there's going to be a a a five bonus experience rogue. And when we were working on Kaimani. I really like the idea of Kaimani having tool access because there's so many different tools that a security expert could could need and could have access to. And it really it just fits them so well. But, you know, in playtesting, we were like, it's not really a ton of cards. You know what I mean? Even with the Scarlet Keys. So it's still it's still mostly a mono class investigator. What can we give them that like, you know, what else can we give them? And it was like, oh, five bonus experience. That's actually the same as Mateo. And it's the same as Parallel Roland. They have uh, basically mono-class investigators with very limited trait access outside of their class. 
like blessed in in Mateo and so on and so forth. I hope that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, totally. Is that something that you I think one thing that I'd always heard about Mateo like right when he'd come out was that like oh, that's that five experience was just tacked on because he's like a little weak compared to other like mystics or whatever. Is that something that is sort of you know what if we're not going to give him a five, we're going to give him five XP. Or if, if mm-hmm. you know, this, there's, is that sort of a determining factor when you're first designing him? Like, let's do this as fi- a five XP investigator. Like, you kind of already had that idea in mind. He definitely didn't start with five XP, but I don't remember when in the process we added the five XP. I, th- I feel like it was early enough in the process that he was playtested with that, like, a lot. It wasn't, like, slapped on at the last minute. Not that we've never done that before. <laughs> But it wasn't, it also wasn't like, oh, Mateo's gonna be a 5 bonus XP character, like, right out of the gate. It was definitely, like, something that got added during playtesting, less because we were unimpressed with his front side, and more because we knew that the blessed access was pretty limited, uh, especially at the time. Granted, Innsmith changed a lot. <laughs> sure did. With regards to that. But at the time, it was like, yeah, oh, cool, you, I have access to, like, these four cards, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That that don't even really synergize with him, per se. But that's just... It was mostly, like, a thematic uh, consideration, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think yeah. folks coming into the game now have sort of the benefit of, like, you know, Mateo, back when he came out, was such a different... Or an investigator, like you said, as opposed to now, with full support of Innsmith, that was, like, his glow-up stage, right? So now, like, he's got yeah. all <laughs> this, like access to all this powerful blessed stuff and as far as kaimani goes they have a whole back catalog of tools that have existed some for a very long time so like it's it's really fun to go and, and tinker with those things um what are your favorite things if you were sort of starting up a campaign right now with with kaimani what would you have them spend their five experience on starting out i would say it depends a lot on player count Okay, sure. I find that it's a lot more important to have that diverse set of tools when you're solo, or even in two-player. Yeah. Especially if your other partner like can't investigate very well, it's it's really handy to have access to stuff like fingerprint kit and magnifying glass and stuff that can like boost uh, their intellect and and whatnot. I've also built Kaimani decks that don't take advantage of that at all and are just mono rogue, and it's fine because Kaimani has their own niche that sort of doesn't need any additional tools in that you just evade a lot. Sure. <laughs> um, and occasionally pull out a gun. Um, but, you know. <laughs> and a grappling hook. And a grappling hook, yeah. <laughs> MJ, I don't know why. Duke is laughing because, like... <laughs> Duke knows my... my I'm, I'm like the one person... I always put 25 auto in my Kaimani <laughs> decks. Oh, yeah, totally. It's just fun. Yeah, evade. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm someone who puts chainsaw in my Kamani decks. Chainsaw, <laughs> that is funny. You're not. You're not alone, Duke. You're not alone. Hold on, I gotta be really stealthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, mostly I use it personally. I've used it the most for like investigation tools. Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, the occasional lantern. Oh sure, Duke. I'm assuming that you're just going straight for straight for chainsaws. No subtlety whatsoever. <laughs> it would be a chainsaw and a level one magnifying glass. That is what that Perfect. Is. <laughs> to complement it. Just kind yeah, of sit I it be, right up there. I want to be ready yeah. for anything, you know? 
And a tool belt for your chainsaw. Yes. Yeah, use a tool belt to swap between them, and then you have that magnifying <laughs> glass to really make sure that they've been properly chainsawed, you know? Uh, yeah. Totally. Hmm, I think something was chainsawed here. Interesting. <laughs> or maybe you steal someone else's chainsaw and then stick it in your pocket. <laughs> there you go. I do like oh, that. Man. <sighs> so as far as uh, the, the sort of 5 XP thing goes... Have you ever considered using this as a way to taboo underused investigators? Or just in general, like, hmm, we feel like this needs a bump in a certain way. Mm. So we try to avoid tabooing investigators as much as we can. We've done it, and we're going to continue to do it. (laughs) And in fact, there's an investigator in FAQ 2.0 that's been tabooed. But anyway. I think when we do want to taboo something, we want to keep it in line with... Like I was mentioning the, the deck building suites. And I think we want to keep that like part of their identity. Mm. I don't know if I... Hmm, I don't know. I don't know. That's an interesting That's an interesting question. Like, would we ever go into like a survivor and just slap five bonus experience on them? Probably not. It's a fair <laughs> point. It would kind of make Mateo and Kimani mm. feel less special, I guess, if you, yeah. if you did that. So that's kind of reasonable. It's it's less that, and it's more like, we might already have a plan for those options in the future. Mm. So, just kind of slapping that on an existing investigator might mess with those plans. Sure. Personally, I would rather save that for, let's say, like a parallel version of Investigator. Mm. Like we did for Roland. Not that I'm confirming anything, but <laughs> um, who knows? So, okay, so so Kimani is, is one of these investigators that is totally new to Arkham Files, right? Not hasn't appeared in yes. any of the previous games. Correct. So for those investigators, or, or maybe I guess for, for Kimani and Amina in particular, did you start with kind of like a personality and a background and a story and then kind of figure out how they'd fit into the game mechanics? Or was it more the other way around? Um, It's been different, I, I would say, for every, for almost every new investigator we've ever added. Uh, sometimes we design an investigator specifically around a niche that we need filled. Sometimes we've just had a cool idea for an investigator and we have an open spot. You know what I mean? Mm. Amina was actually originally conceptualized back in the starter deck days. We knew that we wanted the starter decks to contain a mix of new characters and returning old characters. And Amina was one of those characters that we were like, hey, here's a new pitch for a new character. And we eventually went with Jacqueline instead, with the knowledge that maybe eventually Amina can make it into the game. So that's kind of how Amina started. Whether or not, like, what mechanically Amina was going to do was was not really part of that discussion back then. You know what I mean? With Kaimani, it was a lot more like I had a specific idea for a niche that I wanted to fill in Rogue. I wanted to make a... Basically, what I wanted to do is I I wanted to make an evasion-focused character who actually does enemy removal. Because evasion doesn't do that, you know what I mean? Evasion is for ignoring uh, enemies, and they stay on the board. So it's kind of the opposite of Trish and, like, Wendy and Finn. I wanted to make a character who was like, no, 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 this is an evasion-heavy character, but they're actually, like, removing enemies from the board. So that was entirely the point from the get-go, and that's how Kaimani's entire story sort of came about. It was like, all right, what is this character doing? Conceptually, in my head, it's always been that they're they're losing uh, these tails. You know what I mean? They're not, like, knocking them out or something. Well, maybe they're, like, you know, 
but uh, this is me putting someone Choke in a old. headlock. I don't know what that, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, some people are going to be listening to this and not see me. <laughs> so yeah, anyway. I, I always kind of picture it like that trope in a movie where like the, you know, the, the main character is like running away from somebody and they have like a hat or jacket on. And then, like, off screen, you don't actually see it happen, but, like, oh, the bad guys caught up to them, and they turn them around, and, oh, they gave their hat or jacket away to some random person or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) One of our playtesters affectionately calls it um, tying their shoelaces together. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm going to evade this enemy, and I pull them back, and I'm going to tie their shoelaces together. (laughs) That works, too. Yeah. I'm glad. Um, So, yeah, I encourage people to think of it that way. (laughs) Great. I was about to ask. I was like, what is actually happening when they do that? It's it's whatever you love it. want to theme it as in your head. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Psychopath in um Chad is saying sleep, <laughs> sleep. Exactly. Any hey, whatever works, right? As long as it gets yeah, the job done. Exactly. And then as far as like their backstory, this is actually believe it or not, this is the first investigator that I conceptualized and designed from the ground up. Really? Oh. Uh, usually it's like a well, usually it's a team effort. Um, we have various members in the Arkham Horror Story team who contribute, and they'll pitch an idea, and I'll pitch an idea, and then we'll kind of combine those two ideas, or this, that, and the other thing. Like, Winnie is actually three investigator pitches that we just combined. <laughs> oh. But with Kaimani, it was just, I want to make this character. This is the character I want to make. And it was just approved, and I was like, okay, great, I'm making this character. And that was it. Yes, that was a Dr. Orpheus reference, Walker of Tales. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, because as you said, like a lot of times you're working from a base of like an, an investigator that already exists in in the Arkham Files universe, right? So like Charlie and Daryl have, have kind of been around for a while in that sense. When you're kind of like introducing one of those characters to Arkham Horror, the card game, how much are you trying to kind of like maintain continuity between their like mechanical identity between games? Or is it more about just like if you can interpret who they are as a person differently in the rules? Because some of them, like like Rex, always has something to do with being unlucky, right? Is usually his mm-hmm. identity, but like it varies a lot between games and how it's implemented. Right. Yeah. There's some characters whose ability uh, translates like perfectly well from one campaign for one game line to another, and then there's some game lines that where it's like, yeah, this ability, there's no way to translate this. You know what I mean? A perfect example is like in Eldritch Horror and Arkham Horror, uh, the board game. A big thing is closing gates. Like, that is a huge element of the game, is closing gates. Go into the gate, close the gate. So there's a bunch of characters whose abilities are all revolving around gates. Um, Luke Robinson, Akachi, like, these are characters who all deal with gates in, in those games. And in this game, that's just not a thing. Um, when it is a thing, it's a big plot point. It's not, like, a thing that just happens, like, every scenario. So their abilities just have to be, like, rethought, like, from the ground up. But mostly, we do want to keep their identities sort of the same. When you go from one game to the other, we want you to feel like you know these characters. If you've played Wendy Adams in in this game, and then you go to this game and you play Wendy Adams, we want you to feel like, oh yeah, that's Wendy. Uh, it's not like a complete, you know, oh, it's, this is completely different than their other appearance. But there are some characters where, where that's just the case. Um, like Calvin's a good example. <laughs> Calvin doesn't do anything near his LCG version <laughs> in any of the other games. And that's like totally because of the nature of those games mm. and so on and so forth. Well, so it's, it's great that you brought up Calvin because Calvin is an example of kind of a special type of investigator that we talk about sometimes. Our, our own kind of weird name for this is like puzzle investigators. They're the ones that kind mm-hmm. of, they usually have like lower stats and they either have sort of unusual deck building or they have like a mechanic that like 
compensates for having lower stats, but you really have to kind of focus your deck building around it. So like uh, Calvin's one example, like Preston, Amanda, Lola, to, to some extent. Um, and we were we were very surprised and excited. It looks like there might be kind of three of those in this box, kind of depending <laughs> on how you define it exactly, like Carson, yeah. Charlie, and Amina all kind of to some extent. So is this, do you guys think of having a category of kind of like special, like kind of strange investigators like this? Or, or to you, are they kind of just like, you know, they're more or less in, in a content, in a continuum with the, with the other ones. Yeah. I, I personally, I, I call them, I don't call them pu- like puzzles, but more like they're high skill ceiling investigators. Oh, I like that. They're investigators with a high skill ceiling. Cause it's like, you can just pick up and play them, but some character, some players are going to pilot them better uh, than others. Lola, very just- high skill ceiling. Yeah. Like Lola's yeah. very high skill ceiling. But then there's some characters like Carson's got low stats, but I would not put him in the in the high skill ceiling uh, bin. I would put him in the purely support bin. Okay. Where it's like mm-hmm. he's got low stats because he doesn't need them. Because mm-hmm. he he never. If you test once as Carson, like not that you're doing it wrong, but like you just don't need to do that. Just everyone else test. <laughs> really? Why are you testing as Carson? Yeah. Although there is the. I almost shouldn't say this because I hate this, but there is the. Very common uh, playtester deck of Sledgehammer Carson. Because <laughs> when you get plus five to a test, you don't need good stats. You can just bonk things. Which is very funny. I like the the former SAS Carson. Like, This <laughs> 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 is very funny. Or queen and country. Continues the trend of very old people that can take Sledgehammer and run around with it like Gloria. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. no business with I feel like in, in every Batman comic, eventually there's a part where Alfred like picks up an enormous machine gun and starts shooting right. people. You know, it's the same <laughs> and thing. you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Alfred's a badass. If you even look in his character art, you'll see that we photoshopped out the uh, sledgehammer that he's obviously holding. Him. <laughs> he's obviously <laughs> holding it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like um, like Charlie's definitely like a high skill ceiling character. You know. So of of these like high skill ceiling investigators, I, I have a, I have two questions. Do you have a favorite of the existing ones, or one that you think sort of came out the best? And just in general, are they are they like harder to design and balance? And what does it take to make one that works well? Ooh, that's tough. Do you have a favorite Duke? They're all so unique. Uh, like I've enjoyed yeah. playing all of them. So it's it's really. A little cruel, y'all, to ask us for our favorites. <laughs> but I'm I'm firmly Team Amanda personally, but that's just me. Team, well, Amanda's just good. Oh yeah, <laughs> like that's, Amanda's that's, just that's really good. I think my favorite might be Charlie, but that's also just because he's the most recent, and that's always my answer. <laughs> I like Calvin a lot. I I love Calvin because when Calvin first came out, he was pan, and now everyone's like, no, Calvin's good. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, uh, damn right, Calvin. I think there. the Calvin article was released on like April 1st, and we're like, this must be a, this must be a joke. But <laughs> he I'm Team Calvin. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I definitely, I don't think I would put Amina in that category either, for that matter. Mm. Yeah, the line, the lines are kind of blurred. Amina, right? like, Amina is actually pretty. Like, there is a there is a skill ceiling there with like playing with Doom and like knowing when to put Doom on and when to. But like, as far as um, deck construction and as far as I don't know, like, play the cards that do good things with Doom, and then play the cards that remove Doom, <laughs> and play the cards that use your other stats. You're good. That's yeah. Amina. You did it. <laughs> Always be Moonlight Ritualing, right? And th- <laughs> things will work out. I mean, based on the cards um, that are coming out, you may not even have to. Ooh. 
run that. Like pretty exciting. All of all of those big, uh, all of those hand slot uh, charms that we've revealed, um, they all have some way of self clearing doom, um, which is huge. Um, so as long as you're managing those abilities effectively, yeah, you can. You don't need willpower. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely really exciting. Can I ask? So one of the things about this box was that. Generally, when when a cycle of new investigators comes out, I would be like, sort of just naturally pressed to be like, okay, this is the fighter. This is the typical seeker. Mm -hmm. This is the typical, you know, hybrid person who can do both. And that's generally like any rogue or any uh, mystic, right? But like, in this pack, Mm -hmm. and I think we've seen it before, the first time I think was in... The Circle Undone, where Carolyn was the guardian, and yeah. I was like, what? <laughs> and Joe Diamond was yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then again in <laughs> Dreamlands, where... G-meters, yeah. G-meters, yeah, yeah. Um, with Tony being the, the... Oh, look, that's the five, you know, combat person, right? So that's the person in it. Where do you sort of stand in, like, which one we should be using for combat or are they all meant to be sort of like flexible and and kind of doing their own things in this it's it's kind of how you build them and by kind of i mean completely i think any character i think there's a few characters who you you build them the way that they're meant to be built right sledgehammer carson rex murphy rex murphy (laughs) you investigate if you're not investigating with rex murphy you're rex murphying wrong (laughs) tony tony's gonna shoot things and gain money but then there's a lot of characters. I would say like most characters fall under this huge umbrella of build them the way that you want to play them. If you want to play Charlie as purely combat, you can do that. Just slap a lot of combat allies in your deck and you're going to be good at combat. Uh, if, you're, if you're Charlie Kane and you've got two beat cops and Delilah out, you're going to be good at combat. Mm. You know what I mean? And likewise with with Amina, the the cards that she puts in her hand slots are going to make a big difference as to what she's good at doing. So I I think um I think most characters can be sort of built to occupy whatever niche you want slash flex spot if that's what you want them to do. It's just kind of how I like it. <laughs> yeah, I think diversity in like how you can build for these characters is key to just you can you can find new sides of them, especially as new cards come out. Yeah, that's that's the thing that I'm the most excited about. You know, a character comes out, you're like, oh, okay, I get this character. They do this, and then two sets later, you're like, oh, wait a second, they don't have to do that. They could do this. You know, mm. I'm excited for some of the some of the new deck build opportunities for old investigators that Scarlet Keys is going to bring to the table. There's a lot of uh, really cool stuff. Speaking of new cards. Uh, we do have a card that we were given to us uh, by FFG to reveal tonight. Oh, do we? I had no idea. <laughs> we'll give us a break uh, for a moment, and we'll uh, we'll talk about this new card, which is somewhere at the bottom of my slideshow. Here it is. Hey. So we have a card called Friends in Low Places. Uh, it is... I know that girl. <laughs> we talked about the art a little bit already. It features uh, Niobe uh, and a man with scars and a mustache. But... Uh... So this is a rogue event. Uh, cost zero has a intellect and an agility icon on it. It's a favor, and it is a customizable card, which we haven't talked about in the cast <laughs> yet, but we will momentarily. But it's customizable. When you purchase friend in low places, choose and record a trait on its upgrade sheet. Look at the top six cards of your deck. 
For each looked at card with the chosen traits, or traits, uh, you may spend one resource to add that card to your hand. Shuffle the remaining cards into your deck. Uh, oh yeah, it does say Mrs. <laughs> the quote does say. Plus yeah, it does say. I, I, I was gonna say. I thought it was really funny when everyone's like, "Is that is that Naomi?" <laughs> and I'm like, uh, "They haven't seen the flavor yet." <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure I looked at that and realized that at some point, but forgot. Uh, all right. So um, yeah, we'll talk about the rules for custom models in a second, but um, the actual custom upgrade sheet. So I guess g- generally what it is is the it's a, a set of traits that you can spend experience to add extra functions to the card. So this one, there's a bunch of these that have been revealed already. There's like 10 or so that have been shown, I think. But uh, this one you has a spot to write down your chosen trait. And then if you spend uh, one experience, you can add the helpful trait, which is when you play Friends in Little Places, you may choose another investigator location and resolve its effects. Uh, if you spend uh, two experience, you can add versatile. Uh, not the card versatile, but uh, the trait <laughs> versatile, which lets you uh, pick another trait. When you play Friends in Little Places, you may choose one of the looked-at cards with both chosen traits to add your hand without spending one resource. That's a fun sure. one. Uh, yeah, I think that replaces the base effect, right? Or is that a second uh, card? It doesn't replace it. It's in addition to Oh, okay. That's... Yeah, so what's cool is, like, you can use it to be to spread out your traits. Like, oh, I want mm. items and um, tricks. You mm. know what I mean? Or if you really want to double down on something, you could take like item weapon mm. and then any weapon's going to also have the item trait. So when you pull them, you can just like, oh, I can add one to my hand without spending a resource. Nice. It's always good to draw more cards. So, And then uh, you can add bolstering for two experience. Uh, each card added to your hand by friends in the places gains a wild icon until the end of the phase. Clever is two experience. Instead of shuffling the remaining cards in your deck, you may place them of them each on the top of your deck in any order. Ooh. Yeah. I'll be honest, I read this card uh, many weeks ago when it was said to us, and now I'm re-experiencing it with everybody. <laughs> um, so, uh... You, th- you think you're re-experiencing it? I haven't seen this card in, like, six months. <laughs> uh, so, then, uh... Yeah, that's what it does. <laughs> Uh, another two experience you can uh, gain. You can give it prompt, which is friends in little places gains fast and play during any uh, fast trigger window. Three experience you can make it experienced, increase the number of cards looked at by three, so I make it look, so you can look at nine cards. And finally, uh, three experience uh, you can make it swift. You may play one of the cards added to your hand, paying its cost. So I mean, the big deal with these customizable cards is you can't actually get all of these, right? There's a cap of I think ten experience. Right. Yep. But it does affect all copies in your deck. So you might spend 10 experience on it, but that's really upgrading two cards. So kind of you kind of have to you still have to make decisions on like what stuff you want to do. Do you actually want to invest how much experience into the card and um like what combinations can you play off of it? And it opens up a lot of space here depending what combos you go for, right? Yeah, what what's cool about this card that we really tried to do as much as possible is open it up to whatever you want this card to do. Mm. If you are using this card to pull out your best gun, all right, maybe slap, like, Versatile so that you can get it for free, mm. and pro- or Swift or Prompt or both so that you can do it as fast as possible. Or are using this card, are you winning and you're just trying to grab as many skill cards as you can? Well, maybe mm. you want the bolstering one uh, and the uh, experience so that you can search the top nine so you can just add as many as you want to your hand. 
Uh, if you've got like, you know, if you're the kind of Winnie player who's got a 20 skill deck, like me, <laughs> it's really nice to be able to like, oh, I've got, I've got five resources. I'm just going to search the top nine cards and add like five skills to my hand. They all have a bonus wild. You know what I mean? Or if you're playing a support rogue, which is becoming a thing, you can definitely like take helpful, take versatile and just try to spread out the traits so that like, uh, oh, I'm going to grab like item and spell. That's going to help everyone in my party. You know what I mean? There's so many different things you can do with this card. Yeah, just just looking at the upgrade sheet, you kind of start to get ideas of uh, you know, like how different how different decks could use it. That is really neat. Yeah. I did this this one was carefully labeled look at instead of search. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's the one that's the one thing missing is Mandy synergy really really I'm trying to remember. I think it started as a search effect and <laughs> It mostly, it wasn't that it was too powerful with Mandy, so much as it was just very confusing, because mm. the way that this card works, it's it's already interacting with every single card that you look at in some way, because right. it's for each card that you look at with a chosen trait, you can spend a resource. So it's like, how does this work with Mandy? And at a certain point, I just went, ah, it says look at. <laughs> like, don't, no, no, just forget about it. That's fair, yeah, because Mandy's ability, the rules are kind of complicated, I think, so that, that, right. seems, that seems pretty reasonable. I think it's best to keep search effects limited to, you know, search the top number cards of your deck to do this one thing with that card. Hmm. That makes it easy uh, in the future. Not that we're not going to do weird stuff, because we're always going to do weird stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> always. You, gotta, you always got to leave always. open the possibility of weird stuff. That's what, that's what makes yeah. sense. Yeah. My favorite search card in the game is the, um, what is it? Uh, the Codex? The Otherworldly Codex? It's like, oh, yeah. search the top nine cards of the encounter deck for a card. If there's another card matching it in play, you discard both of them or something. I yeah, love that. fantastic card, <laughs> too. That one is really special. Oh, yeah. That one's cool. So getting back to just sort of customizable is this new mechanic that's, that's, that's really, really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about just sort of where this idea came from for customizable or sort of how this evolved uh, as, you, as you were working on it? Oh, gosh. How did this come about? I, so honestly... I think what happened was I just decided to go ham. And I was like, I just want to make a bunch of weird cards. I just want to make a bunch of cards that do a bunch of different things and you can customize them. And as I was thinking about it more and more, I was thinking about like, oh, how would that even work? Uh, we'd have to have like a separate sheet of different options that you can check off. And then like 10 minutes later, I was designing them. You know what I mean? <laughs> and that, like that, that's, that's usually how things go for me. It's like, if I'm... If I can't stop thinking about it so much so that I'm like working on a weekend, then it's obviously a good idea. Has been my experience at least. They're not going to be for everyone, but there's also not a ton of them. So if you don't like them, that's fine. Don't play them or play the level zero version. They're all playable. They're all fine as level zero cards. If you just ignore the cust the word customizable, they're fine. None of them are bad. Uh, well, except for maybe like the Raven Quill uh, and like. Well, and this, this one, uh, and like the Servitor and the Raven Quill, it's like you kind of need to start upgrading them. Well, to do and this something. one, friends in low but. places, you kind of have to customize it at least in the sense of picking a trait. But that's kind of yes, yeah. yes, yeah. But you, you know, you could just leave it at that. But what I love about them is each one of these cards is such a huge talking point and such a huge decision point. We're going to be examining these cards for years. 
We're going to be going back to runic acts five <laughs> years from now and being like, ooh, with this new investigator, I can do this and this. If I take these two upgrades, oh, it's so good. You know what I mean? I think when I when I first heard about it, when we were first talking about it, I, I was kind of confused because I was thinking, like, how is this different from just having different upgraded versions? Like, we've seen cards before mm -hmm. where there's, like, different upgrade paths, like Emergency Cash. But I think you look at something like Friends in Low Places, things like picking what trait would, would – how, how that would work, and just the sheer number of combinations of how you can upgrade <laughs> it. Like, those are things that you couldn't really do without printing, like, 80 different versions of, you know, yeah. a card. Exactly. There was actually a moment I remember during development in which I was like – could I, would it be possible or plausible for me to make a PDF, like a downloadable PDF that has every combination of upgrades for every one of these cards? And I started doing it and then I went, no, there's no way. Oh my God, that'd be so much work because each one of these has so many different combinations and you can, you can treat them at every level and I'm sure someone will do it. <laughs> I, and like, I, I do not envy that. But like, there's so many different options. Yeah, it's it's really, it would not be viable to do with just upgrades, <laughs> with just like separate cards. Yeah, I think the really cool thing for me about Customizable, like when it came out, it just made so much sense because the game is is sort of at, at this large state, right? There's so many different uh, campaigns and cards available that this is just sort of like, oh, naturally some of these cards, like can do really, really well in specific campaigns, right? Like, I've always known Dunwich mm -hmm. to be really low uh, experience giving generally. So, like, these cards, I like that they shine in any environment. Like, you can you can customize them to just, you know, be a little bit of experience and get, you know, that extra oomph of, of you know, health or sanity or whatever you're looking for, for Dunwich specifically. And then if you're in Forgotten Age, where you might have so much experience, you just don't know what to do with it, you can just have this ridiculous, you could just get in Scenario 7 or whatever, two of the Servidor friends that I, I love to call Jabberwockies, to, to help you out and, <laughs> and hang out with you. And they're just like, they're maxed out, they can do all of your commands at, you know, right from the get-go. I love that it fills that certain like XP sync spot as well as being really efficient, tiny experience cards. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually one of my favorite things about them is that if you're the kind of person who struggles with like, oh, what do I do with these four experience points? Just throw them in your customizable cards. You're not going to, you. it's not going to be uh, a waste at all. They're, they're all good. <laughs> yeah. Or even if you just had like one spare experience, you know? Well, then you get a magnifying glass level one, right? But uh, no. So, yeah, um, <laughs> so besides customizable, another new, mm -hmm. not a new mechanic, but a new kind of theme on the player cards in this cycle is there's a lot of cards, especially mystic cards that deal with doom and putting doom on player cards. Mm -hmm. So we, we talked about the hand slot items a little while ago. This is definitely something where it, it feels like it's getting kind of a lot spicier than, than the initial couple rounds of cards like Arcane Initiate or something like that that would have doom on them. How how has this kind of like evolved over time? Like where it, it seems like you do you feel like you have enough of a handle on it now that you can like take bigger risks with printing cards that uh, put a bunch of doom all over the place? Yeah, I think so. When the game first came out, I mean, keeping in mind that like all of Dunwich and Curse of the Rougarou and Carnival of Horrors were done before the core set even came out. Hmm. So 
for the first like year of the game, we had no idea. We were flying blind. We had no idea how any of these cards were going to get received, what cards are going to be good, what cards are going to be bad, etc. And Doom was one of those things. We we played around with it with Marie, obviously, but it was still very limited. It was like, oh, you slap one Doom on a card, and then you get your bonus, and then you kind of leave it there, and then maybe you get rid of it when it gets close to the agenda. And the more cards we printed that manipulated with Doom, the more we saw that the reaction was, oh, I don't want to play this card, it's too scary, I'm scared, you know what I mean? <laughs> and so we were like, okay. Slowly over time, we learned these play patterns, and now we can start designing cards that play around with Doom more in a way that's fair and feels powerful and like worth it, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that, that is something that I think we, we hear from players when we're talking to them a lot, is people are just like, I, I'm way too scared to play cards that put Doom on things. <laughs> but but it sounds like maybe some of these new cards will kind of change that perception a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, the thing to the thing to remember about Doom, too, is it's very scenario-dependent. Uh, like, if you go back and you think about your past games, and you think, like, what percentage of my games do I lose because of Doom? And what percentage do I lose because I, I'm defeated or I get pinned by an enemy and I can't escape mm. or I can't investigate this location or whatever? And if the answer is like, I, I actually only lose to Doom like 10% of the time, then maybe Doom's not that scary and you should put more Doom tech in your deck. <laughs> that rhyme. Yeah. Hey. And it'll, it'll make you play faster because those cards are powerful. Theoretically, right? Yeah. We're big David Renfield fans on this cast. We we're, we're yeah. I mean Renfield. David Renfield. <laughs> yeah. Renfield's a Renfield's a bit too good. Renfield's a big fan of David Renfield. So Renfield <laughs> might get tabooed. Uh-oh. No. Ren- yeah. yeah. Ren- Renfield might get tabooed like tomorrow. <laughs> Dan, you broke the rule. You're not supposed to mention any card you actually like. In the interview, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm gonna lose sleep worrying about this. That's terrifying. Womp womp. But also. He deserves it. Oof, maybe. maybe. Uh, mostly, yeah. mostly, mostly because of all of these new cards that are coming out. Well, you, you heard it here first, folks. Everybody listening. If you haven't tried playing David <laughs> get in Do now. Do it now. Before, yeah, get uh, it in now. Before the nerf comes. No, so. no. Honestly, play him however you want, because that's the cool thing about the taboo list. Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah, you can break taboo. The coolest thing Absolutely. about, like, Doom for me, and seeing it kind of have this big resurgent with all of these, like interesting cards that handle doom not just in oh put it on then remove it sort of a thing right you're doing like you're you're pushing it to a card then it's getting removed or you're like kind of housing Mm -hmm. it somewhere where it's being ignored is that doom has always felt like the ultimate like if you're if we're thinking about the elements for a minute and like avatar the last airbender or whatever it's always been the (laughs) fire right like you're playing with fire and if you use it Mm. even slightly remotely wrong then you're gonna get burned and, you know, your team's going to do sure. out or whatever. And, like, this yeah. I'm excited to use because we we didn't have much <laughs> other than, like, oh, throw water on it. You know, like, and now we have all these right. different ways of, like, oh, this is how you manipulate it. So I'm really excited to see that and that personality come out of Amina, too. Yeah, one of the things I, I've been really enjoying about these new Doom cards is they interact with different mystics in different ways. Like, if you're Marie... You want to keep one card with Doom in play if you can. So that changes kind of the way that you play some of these cards. If you put, if you slap one of these cards in Marie, let's say you throw a Dowsing Rod in Marie because she's got four intellect. Now she's investigating with like a five base intellect and you can boost it to even higher if you put a Doom on the Dowsing Rod. That combos immediately with her ability. But now you almost don't want to clear the Dowsing Rod. 
because you want to keep that doom in play. That's different from, let's say, Dexter. Dexter, who, by the way, I consider to be a doom investigator, because you can immediately just swap out any of his cards oh, yeah. that have doom on them and play something else. All of these cards interact with Dexter in, in a completely different way. With Dexter, you want to pile the doom on as much as possible, and then at the last second, you're just like, eh, and oh, yeah, he's gone. Yeah. Dexter, David Renfield's best friend, up, up, up until the moment when suddenly they're not friends. <laughs> you know, he was a that. cigarette case the whole time. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I pulled the, uh, like, sleight of hand, and this dowsing rod was actually Leo DeLuca. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Abracadabra. Yeah, Abracadabra, and everyone's like, what? It's actually a cat. <laughs> <laughs> Always was. So what are the other new mechanics that we've seen a couple cards for? Um, is this Dilemma mechanic? And mm. we actually previewed one of them a couple weeks back. But it's it's a revelation effect on player cards, which I don't think we've seen before, at least not ones that you actually draw from your player deck. No, only on weaknesses. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess this is like kind of an old concept that was like part of the encounter deck before, weaknesses, and now it's... Uh, being reapplied in a new way. Where do you like ideas like this kind of stem from? I guess. So it's funny, actually. The a lot of the original dilemma effects started. We we actually play tested them in. Was it Edge of the Earth? Innsmouth. Innsmouth. Yeah, oh. it was all the way back in Innsmouth. I remember because Duke was yeah. yeah. So all the way back in Innsmouth, we had these dilemma cards, and we pushed them back. And I remember we we started putting them in Edge of the Earth, but then we pushed them back again. And the reason we kept pushing them is because we, we wanted to get them right. And also because, like, Innsmouth already had enough going on. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, with, like, Bless and Curse and all that stuff. So the idea behind these cards was we want these cards to be talking points when they come up. We want it to be, like, a, a whole discussion between you and your whole crew. Or if you're only playing by yourself, like, it's just an interesting thing that you have to think about. It's like a little puzzle. Which of these piles do I pick with Heed the Dream? Uh, which of these options do we choose with Predator or Prey? There's a lot of situational things that can come up, and based on like what cards come off the top of the deck with Heed the Dream, there's so many different things that could happen. So it was like, okay, these can't just be events that you play. Because if they're events that you just play whenever you want to, there's really no interesting decision point. You're going to play it at the optimal time, right? You're going to play Predator or Prey when you Im immediately at the time that you want to do one of those options. Mm. And then it's not even going to be a discussion. It's just going to be like, uh, top option, top option, yeah, yeah, okay, we do it. So the fact that their revelation abilities is crucial, because that's what makes it like, you don't have a choice. If one of these cards comes up off the top of the deck, you're doing it. And you have to immediately decide one of those options. There's no middle ground. So for Predator or Prey, if you don't want to move, and you don't want enemies to move, sucks <laughs> like you gotta do it but every now and then you get that that cool experience where it's like ooh, interesting we can either use this card to get our our squishy seeker away from that enemy or to get the enemy to come to zoe <laughs> so that she can stab it like oh interesting choice you know um and that's what i love about them it reminds me a little bit of the research cards from dream eaters um but it, like yeah. a, kind of like a draw version of that instead of a search version yeah yeah, and like obviously the plus side is you don't have to play them. They don't have a cost. They don't have an action to take. Uh, but the downside is sometimes sometimes they screw you. It just happens. Sometimes you pull heed the dream, 
and every good card is paired with a weakness. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you're like, oh, come on. I mean, I, I like the, I like the theme of them that it's like a hard choice, which does feel very survivory. <laughs> to, yeah. Where you could be stuck between a rock and a hard place, or maybe you get lucky and you know get to sprint the stairs away from the snakes or whatever. But yeah, occasionally you get lucky, right? <laughs> which which was the card that you previewed? Uh, we did predator or prey. Okay, yeah. So occasionally you get lucky, or or even occasionally you include Predator or Prey in a deck where you're always going to be doing one of those two options. And then mm. that's cool. That's smart deck building, you know? Yeah. We're, we want to reward you for thinking yeah, about that. Yeah, I, I think when, when we were previewing this, I sort of like made a deck that was like a Tommy deck that was like shoot things in the next room centric. Oh, so nice. like you can kind of push <laughs> yeah, them or pull that. them to where they need to be yeah, sniper to do Tommy. that. Um, which I thought was really cool. And I think... Yeah, this is great for Cyber Tommy. <laughs> I think the neat thing about these is it seems like, anyway, they were they were balanced. They, they're pretty powerful effects. If you were just to be able to play this for, like, yeah. you know, zero or one or whatever amount of resources, they're pretty singularly powerful effects, right? So one of the interesting things for me uh, that I wanted to know was if you saw the, the, the potential for these Dilemma cards and was, was like, Oh, remember that powerful like iteration of this last card that we had? What if we tacked that onto a dilemma and that was half of the dilemma? Has that ever been something that that came into like consideration when you were designing these or say that again? I, I missed yeah, it. Yeah, if so these cards are generally like I would say that one of these effects in the dilemma is more powerful than just like if you were to have this on a card by itself. And right. I'm guessing yes. that that yeah. is sort of even now by the fact that you can't just play it. Mm-hmm. Is there a card that you were designing like previously that had like an iteration that you were excited to include on a dilemma card, where it was like maybe a little oh, bit too powerful, and you were like, "Ooh, I want to, I want to pull that into a dilemma card." Uh, mm, not <laughs> specifically, uh, yeah. but I will say that there are some dilemma cards we haven't revealed yet that have effects that are like, I don't think I would put that on a card normally. Uh, just because it's so, it's so strong when you can choose yeah. when to play it. So yeah, I don't think there were any like past cards where I'm like, oh, this is a design that I scrapped and now I'm gonna p- slap it into a dilemma. Um, but there were definitely cards that when we were designing the dilemmas, we were like, oh yeah, that's fun. We should put that on there because we're not gonna do that normally. You know what sure, I mean? Sure, totally. Yeah. When it comes to uh, so so these are these are really interesting you know new mechanics that are that are on some of these new cards you know when when it comes to cards that have either like you know unique mechanics or sort of a lot of rules text or like a customizable card with a bunch of upgrades I know that you guys must worry about sort of just the sheer amount of like rules text that's on the board at any, any given time and just sort of interpreting everything um, do you have any kind of like internal limits for how complex you can go with the rules on a card or how do you manage uh. to like design cards that are fun without having the rule situation just get like too difficult for players to manage. Yeah, that's tough. So it kind of, de- it depends a lot on the card type. Generally speaking, cards that leave play can be more complicated because they're going to do their thing and then they're going to leave. So if, a- if an event has a pile of text on it, obviously we don't love that, but if it's like necessary to get that effect across, I'm a bit more, uh, that's a bit more palatable than when it's on like an asset. And then some card types have, like, a lot of, like, front-loaded rules, like overhead, uh, like enemies, for example. There's a lot already. You don't even need text on an enemy for them to be, like, 
mentally taxing, right? Uh, just their fight, health, and evade, and damage values are sometimes enough. So when we design an enemy, sometimes all they need is like two lines of text and they're good, or a keyword. So there ha- obviously there have been many enemies that have way more text than that. But in general, like we try to keep that a little lower and front load it more on like treacheries and stuff that's going to like leave play. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Because then it's like, it's, 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 it's it's gone immediately. And then like something happened, but you don't need to keep checking back at what it does every time something happens. Yeah. But that's also just something that we decide in playtesting, right? If a card is in development and it's a, it's a problem because a lot of people are like, oh man, this, this card is just tough to remember. This effect is, is, you know, uh, global effects are like that. If there's a card, even if it's one line of text, a global effect that's just like all enemies get plus one fight. Yeah. Can be really difficult to remember. So it kind of just depends on a number of factors, you know? It's not always amount of words. Because uh, sometimes a card effect can be an entire paragraph, but it's actually really intuitive. Oh, yeah. And y- you kind of just get it. Like, it needs that many words for it to work in the rules, but. You read it and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. Um, like, First Watch is a good example, I would say, of a card that's like that. It's like, when you're reading the card, it's like six lines of text. So, oh my god, that's so much text. But when you conceptualize it, it's just, oh, you just do the mythos phase, but you can pick where the cards go. John, if I could have written that, I would have written that. <laughs> I, I feel like you guys also have, have pretty cleverly avoided some of the like types of cards in other games that introduce the weirdest rules things. Like, there's no cards in Arkham that are like every card on the field is now a tool or something like that, right? Like, yeah, those just lead to to the nightmares. <laughs> I mean, I designed time warp, so I shouldn't, you know. <laughs> but that's an event. You play it and then it goes away, right? Yeah, so, that's true. Yeah. Well, sort of. But yeah, I, I would say, I would say in general, the scenarios are complicated enough that uh, that we don't need to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> we can avoid it. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much the stuff that we wanted to ask you guys about. But we do have, uh, if you guys have time, we have some questions from fans in the chat that we'd like to to ask you guys. I think we might do kind of like a lightning round on this. We might do kind of like a like a one minute on each question just to keep it manageable, if that sounds good. Sure. Sure. Yeah, cool. Duke, you good? Yeah. And if it's a question you can't answer, uh, you know, just say that you have to consult with George Barnaby before. okay yeah 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 or or, or make it spooky like the time is not yet nigh or something Mm, like uh okay the planets have not aligned yeah and and i I should say thanks to harrison for uh, watching the chat and uh, collecting these that's really that's really good (laughs) um cool so do we have kind of like a timer Uh, okay ben's ben's got a timer going I got oh, you're actually going to do a timer. Oh, shit. Okay. Wow. You're on the oh, clock. Yeah. It's, it's real. It's on. So it. question from Comrade Sim. Were traits like spirit, tactics, tools, etc. thought up with plans to make them matter to certain investigators? Or was it more theme first and then making investigators care about them? Uh, then you, you could make cards with that in mind later. Uh, back in the core set days, it was definitely a theme thing. Uh, we kind of mapped out like, uh, these are the traits that we think are going to be in the game. Um, Mm. We've since added to it, but these are the traits that we think are going to be in the game. We didn't really go into the deep um, how many cards of each trait are going to exist and what investigators are going to use what. That was definitely like more of a later uh, development sort of uh, thing, which is why you see a lot of the early investigators didn't care about traits. Yeah, like some investigators do and, and, and some don't. Yeah. Cool. Let's uh let's let's go into the next one. We reset the timer. 
what is your favorite part about designing campaigns with the new format? I guess meaning like the all-in-one box format, and and also maybe what is your least favorite part? And this is this is uh, from from mm. Dan A from 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 Discord, I think. Oh God. Okay. So my favorite part, and I, I want to leave time for Duke to answer this too. Mm. My favorite part is that we can do things that we weren't able to do before with linearity, with the just the box format, like the map, for example. That, that since Scarlet Keys, we would never have been able to do that before. And then my least favorite thing, it's writing the story with all of those factors is really hard. It's alleviated yeah. restrictions from you. That yeah, it's go crazy. Right? It's really easy to write um, a linear story that goes from chapter one to chapter two, because you know that they read chapter one before they yeah. started chapter two. Duke, how about you? Because you, you've worked both a little bit in the old system and in the new system, right? Yeah. And from my understanding of the old system, like the new system allows for so much more possibility, so many cool new things w- that we can explore and do with this format uh things that haven't been done in in games or like in physical card games before yeah and it feels really limitless but yeah i would also echo what maxine said in that it's daunting it adds another layer of (laughs) daunting requirement to to what you're doing as well it's like writing a choose your own not even writing a choose your own adventure novel because the things happen in order there it's just that you can branch this is more like you know who knows what's going on right there were so many times in scarlet keys where we were like Oh, we have to revise this dialogue because they might not know this yet. Because they might not have traveled to this location yet. Ah, oh, dang! You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. Uh, let's see. So we got another question. This one's a little vague, but let's see where it goes. Uh, on the night train asks any new tokens? Uh, no new tokens in Scarlet Keys. Okay, yeah. So so kind of like that, like the frost tokens or the the little uh, seal things in Edge of the Earth. So none of those in in Scarlet yeah. Keys. Not in Scarlet Keys. There are new mini cards. Mm. That's pretty good. I think I saw in the box there was like 40 mini cards or something. Yeah, what are those about? Weird. Wow, that's a fun thing for people to speculate about in the remaining uh, weeks before before we get our hands on it. (laughs) I'm sure we'll show more later. (laughs) Next question. Uh, Okay, this one, I... Again, vague. We'll see see how how it's interpreted. Can you talk about La Chica Roja uh, from (laughs) Slebin777? I mean... I can, but like, what do you want to know? <laughs> La Chica Roja is definitely like one of my favorite characters in the Scarlet Keys. I don't want to say too much because I, I kind of just want players to discover her on mm. their own. But she's a lot of fun. She's probably my favorite character to write dialogue for. You can tell. I will say that. Yeah. I will say that. Yeah. You can tell when you read La Chica Roja's dialogue that it's like, yeah, MJ had a lot of fun. So that's that's our takeaway so cool. is, is prepare yourself for La Chica Roja. That's, it's, <laughs> She's so it's cool. Coming. I just want to be her. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, let's see. Okay, so another question from Comrade Sim. Uh, how much changed between organizing cards for specific packs versus the new box format? I guess that's maybe about like player cards, but it could also be like encounter cards, maybe? Um. Well, obviously player cards, yeah, there's a big, like, we used to have to divvy up the player cards between mm. the different boxes, and that was a whole thing, and we'd have to really <laughs> think hard about it and figure out what cards work in which box. Uh, now we just don't do that, <laughs> and that's so much easier. It also is great for encounter cards, because it means before, we had to keep a state, we had to, every, every pack had 60 cards, right? Mm. So generally speaking, every scenario was between 30 and 40 cards. Uh, they, it just had to be, or like, maybe 42 cards at the most or sometimes less sometimes it's like 28 cards whatever now we can just do whatever we want i think there's a scenario in the scarlet keys that's like 15 cards we can just do that that's awesome we were never able to do that before 
Um, and we, likewise, we could make a scenario that's like 80 card. There isn't, but like, theoretically, we could. You could if you, you want know? to. <laughs> yeah, it's just really, it's just really exciting that we have that, that openness. Yeah. That is really cool. Okay, so this this one I don't see who asked it, so sorry about that, but this will be like an anonymous question. Uh, did you know Bless and Curse tokens are going to be released when Mateo uh, came out? Or maybe, I mean, you designed stuff like a year and a half in advance or something like that, so maybe it should be like when you were designing Mateo, did you know Bless and Cur- Curse tokens were coming in the future? I should clarify real quick. Um, the scenario that's 15 cards is just the scenario itself, and then there's also encounter sets. It's not... Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Um, as for Mateo, yeah, no, we, I had a plan for Bless and Curse tokens to exist, mm-hmm. but I didn't know what they did yet, and I didn't know when they were going to appear. It was more just like a, at some point I want to add more Chaos tokens. That was like what I had in my head. And I knew that I wanted it to be Bless and Curse tokens, because that's such a like big thing in the old Arkham games, is like Bless Dice and Curse Dice. Oh yeah. But yeah, I, we didn't have a specific plan that they were going to show up you know, in a specific cycle, a certain number of years from now, and know what they were going to do, and know that there was going to be cards that synergize with them that have the plus trait, and no, none of that was set in stone. Uh, so this next one is is interesting. You might not be able to say much about it, but I'm I'm definitely curious. I think this is from earlier. You mentioned, you know, that the new pack has to work in isolation with just the core set, even even for right. people that aren't huge nerds like us that have bought all the previous stuff. So <laughs> does does FFG have stats about like how many players are kind of like corset and then they just pick up the newest expansion versus how many people are like just playing the corset and nothing else versus how many people are like fully committed by everything as soon as it comes out like do you guys have numbers and does that affect sort of your your planning we don't have specific numbers about like itemized lists like that like oh this many people picked up these two products at such and such date Mm. we don't have anything that specific what we do have broadly are just sales numbers Mm. And we do know just by looking at the sales numbers that the core set outsells everything by a huge factor. So we we can like theorize from that that there's a lot of players out there who just have the core set. That's all they have. Or maybe they have the core set in one cycle. I would say the just looking at the numbers, the percentage of players who have every single product mm-hmm. is pretty low. So while we do want to make sure that those players are highly entertained, because they're like the players who are the, they're the lifeblood of the game, we also want to we're, we're also very much aware that I think a strong majority of players um, only have like maybe one cycle, two cycles, none even. So we want to make sure that those players are incentivized to pick up, even if they can just skip ahead. That's fine. Otherwise, they feel like it's daunting, right? Mm, it's like yeah. Oh, well, in order to play Scarlet Keys, I have to pick up these eight cycles. I'm not going to do that. Like the cost of entry is is like too high. Exactly. I, I should say yeah. that question was from a psychopath from the chat. Oh, this this one's interesting. Uh, what is your headcanon for why Kaimani works really well with Lola Santiago and Jean, two allies they would probably hate in canon? Is that Janae? Janae Beauregard. Yeah. Sorry. The, the, without yeah, the Janae. accent, it's hard to. So I've always I've always pictured it as one of two things: either. Kaimani is putting on the front, right? Uh, Kaimani is because Kaim- <laughs> basically this is this is Kaimani's like, what's the word? Day job. Secret identity, almost, Ooh. right? Yeah, this is their cover story. Their cover story is that they do this, and as part of that, yeah, they probably do interact with people like Lola, Janae. They might even come to admire those those people for their own reasons. 
another possible theory is maybe those characters are in on it too. Uh, maybe Kaimani's uh, basically gone to Lola uh, and been like Lola Santiago mm-hmm. and been like, hey, um, here's I, I think we should, you know, I think we should relinquish these artifacts back to their original owners. And maybe Lola's like, yeah, I'll help you with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like an inside, you yeah. know, the inside girl, uh, <laughs> like undercover. Um, so, yeah, I I've always felt with Arkham. I'm going past the minute, probably, but. I've always felt with Arkham that when you include a card in a deck, that is you thinking of you. You can think of your headcanon for how that card came about in that deck, right? If you put a police badge in Skids, <laughs> how did Skids get the police Classic. badge? My headcanon is he stole it naturally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. Um, but maybe your headcanon is. He's actually friends with uh with one of the officers who was like nice to him or something. Or he was an undercover cop the whole time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can kind of it's 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 like character creation, except with a lot of the lines filled in already. You you are Schizo Tool, but like how did you get these cards? That's up to you. You know? Absolutely. Uh just just yeah. a couple more of these left. Uh so here's one from Perford and Harrison. Are we getting a seeker side quest? Uh, yes. that might be one you, that might be one you think the yes or no answer <laughs> yeah. to but yeah that's one I'm gonna I'm gonna hold off yeah. on that okay. one yeah. right. so that's yeah. a, that's a big question mark but we're we're excited about mm-hmm. it uh, okay last one <laughs> this is from Archivos Arkham can we expect more custom cards in the next campaigns or they're exclusive from Scarlet Keys do you think having too many of them would be a problem I guess that customizable mm. cards is probably what we're talking about yeah so generally speaking Generally speaking, we I don't like to do multiple uh, mechanics like that in a row because I want to see what the reception is first. And we work far enough ahead that if we did it, like if we if the next campaign immediately also had more customizable cards, I don't know how they're going to be received. You know what I mean? I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to see that reception first. Are we going to eventually do more? I don't know. Maybe that's that's a decision that we would have to come to uh, in a future date. Who knows? Um, that also means that some mechanics that we've already done might come back at some point. Um, but yeah, there's usually going to be a gap between them, right? For that reason. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that makes sense. Duke, do you have anything to add on that front? Uh, no, just cryptic mutterings and <laughs> incessant <laughs> whispers. Mm, prophecies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's possible that there's some mechanics we really like. Yeah. You want to see more of? I don't know. I'm just saying. Mm, yeah. <laughs> no. Maybe. I'm, uh, I'm I'm pining for the return of research cards. One one day, maybe mm. we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Uh, cool. So I, <laughs> yeah, I think that's. Thanks everyone in the chat. Those were those are some pretty good questions. I think that's that's pretty much it. But before we go, um, anything that either of you would like to plug? I mean, obviously buy the Scarlet Keys, right? Obviously, but um, mm-hmm. anything outside of Arkham or FFG or your social media Squish or anything Thulu. like that. <laughs> read my book oh yeah <laughs> i'm just kidding um i don't know uh oh here's an exciting thing um the secrets in scarlet uh anthology if you mm. haven't heard about it uh it's one of the many aconite books that's coming out next year it is a anthology of stories that are essentially prequel material to the scarlet keys so uh it's really cool i got to write one of the stories that's in it um, it happens to be about one of my favorite characters. It's not La Chicaroha, but it's really good. <laughs> However, if you read Secrets in Scarlet, you might 
learn more about La Chica Roja. Ooh. And that's cool. So you should do that. It's really good. Yeah. Duke? Uh, I mean, you can follow me on pretty much anything at Josiah Duke. Um, and I have a book that I'm working on getting published that I wrote like several years ago, but that's, that's not out yet. So we'll see. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned. Yeah. Publishing is like, it, there's a huge delay, right? Like you write something and then it takes like, who knows how long for it to actually. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, does the book have hints on how to get to the secret scenario? No. Unfortunately, <laughs> I wish that I had thought of that. that up, actually up, down, down, really right, cool. left, right, yeah. left. <laughs> That will work. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, before we kind of wrap things up, we did want to mention that Arkham Knights was just announced. Hey. And some of these folks are going to be there. Not the cat, unfortunately. Maybe. Maybe. He's made so much noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll be there. Maxine, will you be there? Uh, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah. I mean... Barring some emergency, yeah, I will be there. We're excited for it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited. So thanks again, MJ Duke, for both coming on, spoiling the card with us, hanging out, answering questions from chat, showing us Squishthulu. It was all fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How does everybody feel about the new card? Let us know how you're going to be using friends in low places and leave us a comment. Email us at comments at muir.fm. To stay current on what we're doing, follow us on social networks including Instagram and Twitch or join our Discord server to hang out. You can find the links to all of them at social.muir.fm. Thanks everybody for listening. Thanks folks for being here. And we're going to catch you next time. Bye. Bye everybody. Bye everyone. Bye. Now, Duke, about those cheese plates. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is, is there, are those written down somewhere? Like the I cheeses am... that you selected or anything? Uh, yes, it would have been Humboldt Fog, a whiskey cheddar, and uh, I think it was some kind of Gruyere. Or maybe You've it was already a baked blasted brie. way past my cheese knowledge nope. here. So but <laughs> it, sound, it sounds great. Harrison's Humble Fog is my favorite cheese. <laughs> and Harrison knows cheese. Humble Fog. <laughs> so I'm excited. I mean, both Ben and Dan know that I am one for like presentations. So I'll get the spooky music out. We'll dim the lights. We'll get like King and Yellow themed things. So, oh yeah, yeah I'm excited. <laughs> Everyone wears like gold masks and you, uh, oh, maybe that's a little, a bridge too far. You can't. Yeah, you far? can't. Talk about uh, it. I don't okay. know. Ben, Ben's ben, Ben's kind of had some stuff like that in the past. So, you know. I de- when I read when I read the uh, War of the uh, War of the Outer Gods, I definitely had some ass props. I'm sure it was fine. I thought it was weird. Yeah.